This morning we're going to be considering Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. If you have a Bible, you can follow along when we get there. Before then, I'm actually going to read to you a passage from Acts chapter 26. And it's, it, it, at some point, the Apostle Paul was arrested and he appealed, him, appealed to Rome. And on his way there, he had the opportunity to tell his story to different people. And what I'd like to do is actually open this morning by reading the account of Paul before King Agrippa and what he said to him. And then we will continue on with our text this morning. So from Acts 26, I say to you, hear the word of God. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise God made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to those things in which you have seen me, and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would um, simply come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that it, this very morning uh, some might, uh, like the Apostle Paul, have their eyes open, that they might see the glories of Christ and they might receive a forgiveness of sin, be delivered from the kingdom of darkness. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. Amen. So I just, I just read to you Paul's story. He, tell, he loves to tell that story. And so the question I open with this morning is basically this. What is your story? Do you think about that much? And by story, I mean, what is your faith story in particular? One of my favorite parts of Discover New Hope that, that we do almost every week, not today because it's Mother's Day, is we have a time when we go around and just ask people their faith stories. Take two minutes. Tell us where you are. And a lot of times people are not Christians at all. 
they, but they have some kind of faith story. I always tell mine, I, mine was actually rocked this week. I always tell people, you know, I, grew, I didn't grow up going to church, not, not at all. And when I was in, a senior in high school, two girls that I've been in German class with for four years um, invited me to go to camp. And I always say two Christian girls invite me to go to, to camp. And one of those girls was in town this week and had dinner at my house. And I was so excited. I said, and I told her, I said, I tell everyone, these two Christian girls invited me to go to camp when I was 17 years old and I became a Christian. And she said, oh, I wasn't a Christian then. She said, I didn't become a Christian until I was 30. <laughs> I was like, but my whole life. <laughs> like, that's the story, man. She said, nope. I said, but you invited me to camp, right? She said, oh, I went to camp. I haven't thought about trusting Jesus. I just didn't. Okay. I don't know what to say. Other than I'm glad that God was able to use someone who didn't even believe yet to bring me in. Do you think much about your story? I mean, our stories are important. The Apostle Paul's story is important because as we've been looking at the book of Galatians, the one of the, what, what, remember what happened in the book of Galatians is that the Paul basically planted these churches through what is now Turkey, and he preached to them this gospel of free grace. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he said the way that one becomes a Christian is to understand that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, and basically he was our substitute. And when we, when we trust him, we, we are united with him, and we, everything that God thinks of Jesus, he now thinks of us. And so the, that's the gospel. It's it. Simple as that. Do you have faith that Jesus died for your sins and was risen again for them? And some other people came along from Jerusalem. Let's call them agitators to be nice. Um, and, and these agitators came along and said, you know, Paul was a good guy and all, but he doesn't really understand the gospel, right? The gospel really is Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus obeying certain parts of the law. They were called Judaizers, we call them Pharisees, but at the end of the day, the whole, their whole point was that the gospel is Jesus plus something. And what Paul comes in to say is Jesus plus something equals nothing. If you add anything, works of the law, uh, being good, all these things, they don't add anything. In fact, they take away from the grace of Jesus. And so as Paul dealt with these agitators, one of the ways that they tried to undermine his gospel was to undermine his character and to undermine his story. And so the way the book of Galatians starts on one hand is with Paul clarifying the gospel, but it also is about Paul clarifying his call, clarifying who it is that God is, what God did in his life and how God did it in his life and, and, and what is his story because his story makes all the, helps all the rest of it makes sense. And so that's what Paul does this morning when we look at the text. Is he, as he continues to clarify the gospel for the Galatians, he actually clarifies his own story to them so that people can have confidence that what he is telling them is true. And so basically what we're going to look at this morning is three things. Is that we're going to look at Paul's credentials, we're going to look at Paul's call, and we're going to look at Paul's contact. And when I say contact, that's his contact with the Jerusalem apostles, people like Peter and James and John. So if you remember last week, there are basically two accusations that were, were lodged against Paul. On one hand, people said he was a people pleaser, and they said he was a people pleaser because he didn't require circumcision. 
And remember, last week, Paul said, I wish those that preach any other gospel than mine would be accursed forever, anathema, damned to hell forever. And then remember, he said, now who's trying to be a people pleaser? So he dealt with that one. And this morning, he's going to deal with this whole idea that somehow he, that he went to Jerusalem and received the gospel from the apostles. And then when he left Jerusalem, he actually preached the wrong thing. So you look at three things this morning, his credentials, his call, and his contact. Let's look first at his credentials. Notice verses 11 through 14, it says, he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among many of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So the first thing to, to clarify, if you remember last week, Paul basically said there is only one gospel. One, not two, not three, not one plus something. There's one gospel. And that's an extremely exclusive claim. Would you agree? And some people are, are uncomfortable with the fact of Paul making such an exclusive claim. Now, just to, to help you understand, almost all truth claims are, are like that. They're almost all uh, exclusive claims. Like, so people who have, have you ever heard the story of the elephant, the three men and the elephant? Leslie Newbigin is a missionary. He was a missionary for years. He's passed away since um, he talked about this. When you think about the three men and the elephant, basically you take three blind men and you're going to show them an elephant, but they can all only touch one part. So one man goes up and he grabs the elephant's tail, and then you say, so what is an elephant? And he says, elephants are weak and frail and a little bit fuzzy at the end. And, and another guy goes up and he touches the, the stomach of the elephant, the midsection, and you say, what are elephants like? And you say, well, well elephants are, are like rocks, they're like buildings, you can't get past an elephant. And then you ask the third guy, and you have him grab, the, he grabs the trunk, and nothing else, and he's blind, and you say, what, what are elephants like? And he says, they're sort of long and mushy. Are they right? Well, of course they're, they're right. In some sense, they all have part of the truth. And any, any thinking person would look back and say, well, of course, everyone knows that an elephant is more than just the tail and more than just the trunk and more than just the, the midsection. Elephants, are, those blind men, they only have part of the truth. But if you are able to say that, what you're saying is, I'm able, actually, you, you can only say that the blind men have part of the truth if you are able to step behind them and see the whole truth. Does that make sense? So, so you have to, so someone, whenever you say, if you say, I think all religions lead to the same place, well, you've just made an exclusive truth claim. And all exclusive truth claims can't be right. The only way you could know all religions lead to the same place is if you were somehow above all religions and could see where they all lead. And the Apostle Paul, he makes a truth claim. He says there is only one gospel. And what he does now is by way of his own story, he tells us why. He makes the case as to why his gospel is the only gospel. And so what, it, what does he say about himself? Verse 11, first thing he says about his gospel. He says, first he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not man's gospel, nor did I receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it 
through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he makes, basically makes three points. He says, I did, it, it's not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from a man, but in fact, I received it from God himself through Jesus. So on one hand, it's not man's gospel in the sense that all religions have to do something with works. Oh, I, I can't think of any religion that is like Christianity that says your, your sins have separated you from God and by sheer grace he is willing to forgive you through the work of Jesus. Everyone else says you've got to do something. Man wouldn't come up with that. Man, man's gospels all have some aspect of work. Paul said, I didn't get it from a man. And he says, I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from anybody. But in fact, I received it from, uh, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, and we read that story, that Jesus appeared to Paul and, and told him, I will call you, tell you how much you have to suffer for my name. And we imagine when Paul went out into the wilderness for three years that Jesus gave him more of that. What's more interesting here is not just that his gospel isn't man's gospel. He wants them to understand his credentials, how much this, this, this gospel has changed someone like him. Notice what he says. He says, you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, my, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So apparently the Galatians heard Paul's story either from Paul himself or from his detractors. And you can imagine his detractors coming along and saying, okay, it's Jesus plus circumcision. And the people in the church will say, Paul said circumcision didn't matter really. We just had to trust Jesus by faith. And them saying, so you're telling us, Paul the Pharisee, Paul the guy who mastered the law, Paul, Paul the one who loved the law so much that he persecuted the church. You tell me he didn't care about circumcision? Come on. But Paul reminds them of where his Pharisaism, where his self-righteousness led. You see, the, the biggest problem that most people have is not their badness, but their goodness. And by goodness, I mean self-righteousness, right? We've talked about that before. Bad people know they're bad, right? And they sort of you know, come to grips with that. Good people don't think they're bad. The problem with, with goodness or self-righteousness is that ultimately it ends up being badness. I mean, think about all of the things that you could talk about with the Apostle Paul, right? Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he would have memorized much of the Old Testament. Is that a bad thing? Of course not. It's a good thing. He loved the traditions of his fathers. He was religious. All of these things. But ultimately, his righteousness, his self-righteousness led him to a place where he was killing Christians. And if you look at any, any big movement, so consider the Nazis, right? Were the Nazis bad? Of course they were bad. But did the Nazis' badness start with badness? It didn't. It started with goodness. They thought they were better than other people. They thought Jews were inferior. They thought they were superior. And that out of, with all the good intention of their heart, they thought, let's just exterminate these inferior people so there's more room for the superior people. It was self-righteousness. It was goodness that led them to make those kind of decisions. And it, it happens all the time in churches. You know, I've been in... I've been in doing this for 25 years now, church, and I have never one time seen a church divided or split because all of the members were suddenly lascivious and drunken and adulterous. Not one time. That suddenly, the, it was just the church became this big debaucherous party and it split because of that. Never. On, one, on the other hand, 
I cannot tell you how many churches. I mean, it's, it, it, it is, makes you want to cry. I couldn't count them on both of my hands and my, both of my feet. How many churches that have been split up because of the good intentions of self-righteous church members? That their goodness leads to a place where there's no grace. Their goodness leads to a place where there's no place to listen. That people must win at all costs. That's where the Apostle Paul was. So when he says, you know of my former life, why does he bring up his former life? Why does that matter here? And I think that what, the reason it matters is because people who are like that don't change very easily. And so the fact that Paul is, is telling them something different means that something else had to have happened. And by the way, people like you and me, we don't change very easily either. There has to be some kind of supernatural intervention. Remember Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Something must come from the outside and open your eyes. Something must come from the outside and help you to understand your need for the gospel. That's where Paul goes next. So on one hand, he says, you know my credentials. He says, but let me tell you about my calling. Notice his calling. He says in verse uh, 15, greatest word in the New Testament, but. He says, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem or to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So, so Paul says, I used to be this way, a persecutor of the church, someone who's zealous for the traditions of the Father, but he changed me. And you notice after that but, suddenly the pronouns change. And you, 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 can un you know that you are starting to understand the gospel you, by, just by the way you use pronouns. So before the but, Paul kept saying, I, 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 I. I was a persecutor. I was zealous. I was, uh, loved the traditions of my fathers. I, 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 I. And then after the but, he says, but... He who set me apart, he who called me by his grace, he who is prevailed. In, in other words, what the gospel does is takes the focus off of us and puts it on the one who deserves it. So before the gospel, it's I. I'm a good person. I'm a righteous person. I help people. I do these things. After the gospel, we say he saved me. He delivered me. He who had no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. So the gospel changes our pronoun use in many ways. And he, notice he says, I was set apart by he, he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Okay, so that might be a little bit uncomfortable for some of us. It wasn't uncomfortable for Paul to consider that for us to say grace doesn't mean that God just overlooks sins. Grace means that I am so lost that God must actually initiate with me. And that even before he was, I was born, God had his sights on me. Paul said, before he was born, he was set apart by God. For what? For his grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's as simple as that. He said that I, I was set apart by his grace. And how do we receive grace? Grace is received through his son. He says he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. And he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. It, it's easy to miss that, that one line when Paul says that grace was shown to me that I might preach him, Jesus, among the Gentiles. And the reason that's incredibly important to catch that where he says to preach to the Gentiles is I want you to think for a minute who Paul is. And maybe if we contrast the Apostle Paul with 
the Apostle Peter, it would even help us understand grace a little, much, a little better. So Paul was saved by God's grace, got initiated with him, knocked him off the horse, drew him in, and said, Paul, you, the Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, who has mastered the law, zealous for the tradition of your fathers, I'm going to send you to the unclean Gentiles. Peter? Peter? Blue-collar Peter? The fisherman who we know had a problem with his language? Peter, the cuss machine? Peter, the unclean? Peter? We're going to send you to the Jews. Now, if it was you and me sitting in a room and we were interviewing candidates, would we say, okay, we've got the Hebrew of Hebrews, the, the, the guy who's a master of all Pharisees, the guy who has memorized the Bible, we should send him where? You send him to the Jews, of course. And you take this guy, this blue-collar guy, who's been changed by the gospel, but he's still rough around the edges. He still cusses too much. He does all these things. Who do we send him to? Send him to the Gentiles. Not in the, not the gospel. That's not what God does. God sends the least likely person to the Gentiles and the least likely person to the Jews because when the gospel takes root in the lives of the Jews and the Gentiles, everyone will know that the only reason that happened is because God made it happen. It wasn't because the messenger was so great. It was because God is the one who does all the work. And it's easy to miss when we hear that Paul was called to the Gentiles because the fact is, is God sent in some ways by human standards the wrong guy to the Gentiles. And yet in the providence of God, in his sovereignty, in his plan, it was the exact perfect guy. So Paul goes from, from his calling there to his contact. And we'll finish with this. He says, after he, he was called to preach to the Gentiles, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and then to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw no one other than none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And he says, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And he says, then I went to the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So basically Paul says, that he gives them three alibis, if you will, why he couldn't have received his gospel from man. So the first alibi he says, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go to Jerusalem after I was converted. He says, but I went away to Arabia. And I was gone for three years. We have no idea what Paul did when he was in Arabia. John Stott, I think, has very interesting theory. He, John Stott's a very famous Bible teacher, has passed away now. He thinks, he wonders if Paul went out in the wilderness for three years to make up for the three years that the, the, the original disciples had with Jesus. That Paul went away for three years to do nothing but fellowship with Jesus, to pray, to master the gospel, to, to, to hang out with him. We don't know. But Paul says, when I, when I was called and converted, I didn't go to Jerusalem to get the information. I went to Arabia. I went out into to the wilderness. And so that's his first one. The second time, he says, then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. You notice that Paul is being extremely detailed here because he knows that one of these agitators is going to come behind him and check his work. 
And so he says, I went to Jerusalem for, I was there for three years, and I went to Jerusalem for 15 days, no more, no less. And he says, I visited with Peter. And that's an important word because that word visited means visited in the sense that you would use it um, if you lived in the South. Right? We're going to go visiting this afternoon, which means we're going to go to people's houses and we're just going to sit around and make small talk and chew the fat. And Paul uses that word very specifically to let people know that I did go to Jerusalem to meet these people and I, I hung out with Peter and all we did was chew the fat. I didn't learn from him. He wasn't instructing me in the gospel, nothing. We were just getting acquainted. And he says, and I saw James, the Lord's brother. We, for all we know, he saw him passing on the sidewalk. But Paul wants to make it clear that he didn't go there to get the gospel from them. And so that's the second alibi. Third alibi is he says, um, then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And he was gone there for 14 years before the next time he would go to Jerusalem in, in basically that sentence that I just read to you. So for 17 years, he has been away from all of this. And he says, the people in Judea around Jerusalem, they, don't know my, they wouldn't know my face if I showed up. But they know my testimony. And it's interesting that that's where he ends. Remember, did you catch what it said? It says, they, they, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. So he didn't get the gospel from any of them. But even in his absence, because of his story, they were getting the gospel from him. Even in his absence, they were glorifying God because of him, through him. That, that, in many ways, that also makes us uncomfortable. Because it makes it sound like the focus is on Paul. What does he mean when he says, they were glorified God because of me? You know, probably in the late 90s, um, I went to a baseball game, a Colorado Rockies game, with my best friend, Paul Warren. We were at a General Assembly meeting. And he said, hey, I wanted, he wanted to see every ballpark in the country. And he said, let's go to this Rockies game. And I said, okay, fine. I said, maybe I can see my friend Danny. And he said, who's your friend Danny? And at the time, there was a guy named Dante Bichette, and he was one of the most famous players on the team, big home run hitter. And I said, Danny. And he said, there's a, the only guy there is a guy named Dante. And I said, what's his last name? And he said, Bichette. And I said, that's him. And he said, you know him? I'm like, yeah, we've played baseball since like kindergarten. He loves me. And he's like, seriously? And I'm like, yeah, why would, I, why would I lie about that? He's like, we'll see. So we go to the field before the game, and before the game, everyone is standing above the Rockies dugout, and at some point, uh, you know, people, the, the players start coming out. And there, there's some kind of contract thing, too, where they won't sign balls. And so kids are begging, please sign my baseball, sign my baseball. And, you know, I'm just standing there. And at some point, Dante Bichette runs out. And everyone's yelling because he's one of the most popular. Dante, Dante, Dante. And Paul, he didn't turn around. And Paul said, well. And at the top of my lungs, I yelled, Daddy! And he stopped and turned around and said, Tommy Allen! And he came running over to the to dugout. First thing out of his mouth, how's your mom? How's your sisters? And we talked for about 10 minutes. You know the beautiful thing? The whole time he was talking to me, he was just signing baseballs. He wasn't even looking. We were just shooting, chewing the fat. And after he left, he's like, oh, got to go. You know, he's like, I got to go hit some home runs. A father and son came up to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, I can't tell you how much we thank you. And I said, what did I do? 
And he said, my son has collected every player's autograph, and that was the one autograph he has been trying to get for two seasons, and now he has it because of you. That was true. In other words, they glorify God because of me. In other words, they, they, they recognized that, that even though it was Danny's autograph, that somehow I was used to do that. And because of that, they were, they were, they were, it wasn't just they were thankful, it was more than that. But I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He says, people glorify God because of me. He's not taking credit for people being saved. But what he's, he's doing is he's owning the fact that God has called him to do this. He's owning it. You know, I tell people who, who interview, we've been interviewing pastors, and every time we go in, I don't coach them, but I say this. I say, I'm going to give you one piece of advice when you interview. You need to be like Jesus. <laughs> and they go, really? And I say, I'm, what I mean by that is this. When people ask you questions, be humble, but not modest. Be honest. What, what has God called you to do? How has he used you? What is he doing in your life? What is your story? I ask you that. What is your story? What has God called you to do? And when, you, when you're asked about it, are you humble but not modest? Can you, are you able to say, I know this is what God wants me to do? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you that um, I, I glorify God because of the Apostle Paul. That, that you, you, all the work you did in his life thousands of years later um, reverberates to even that, that I might be blessed, that our church might be blessed. Um, we thank you more than that for the grace that initiated with him, the same grace that initiates with us. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen.